0: Have no control over it. it. Healthcare is something that happens to people in America. It's not something that they pick and choose for the most part. It's something that their HR department says this is what it is. Uh, if you don't like it, tough. Uh, and that's, that's that's not something that Americans really want in any other part of the economy. Right. Uh, but in healthcare, they're trapped into it. And, and so, mm-hmm. like, restoring individual control I think is the essence of of what would make Americans feel better about their health care system and kind of give them what
1: they want I'm Kevin Nicholson and this is the right idea podcast I'm Kevin Nicholson volunteer president and CEO of no better friend corporation thanks for joining us for season two of the right idea podcast this season we're sitting down and having conversations with a series of great Americans to celebrate our country to talk about addressing our challenges and to lay out a path forward. Today on the Right Idea podcast, we sit down with Chris Pope, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, whose research centers on healthcare payment policy. Some of his most recent research dives into hospital market regulation, entitlement design and insurance market reform. To secure our nation's economic future, we must reverse the mistakes of Obamacare and inject market forces into healthcare. Join our conversation today as Chris gives us valuable insight into the pitfalls of government run healthcare, the flaws in our current healthcare system, and practical, conservative solutions for the future. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Well, welcome to the Right Idea Podcast, and we're thrilled to have Chris Pope here from the Manhattan Institute. Today, we're gonna be talking a bunch about healthcare policy and actual solutions, and I know those that have listened to uh, basically anything that No Better Friend does know that we believe here about the importance of actually introducing market solutions into healthcare in order to get healthcare in America on the right track. Because if we don't get healthcare on the right track, uh, it's gonna bankrupt the rest of the country. And Chris, before we even get to healthcare, let me ask you a broad question we've been asking all of our guests here in season two of the Right Idea podcast, which is, what do you love about America? What is your favorite part of this country? And what, I would ask you, what makes you think that it is in fact a truly great country?
0: Well, I, I grew up in England, so I'm here by choice <laughs> at a very fundamental practical level. So I guess it's a practical question for me rather than just a, a theoretical question. Right. And I, I feel at some level it, it's probably an answer that you've heard from a lot of people, which is that this is... I mean, it, it's cliche, but it is the land of opportunity. It's the country. It's sort of... It, the country that offers the most opportunity. The country. I mean, if you look at any business the businesses that are in the world, these are where the, the greatest businesses are created. Like this is, if you what they say about New York, if you can make it there, you can make it everywhere. This, this is the country where, if you want a challenge, you can come and really go as far as you want to go. Uh, it's cliche. It's, it's a boring answer. It's an answer I'm sure you've heard from other people, but it's, it's the, the reason for it is because it's fundamentally a true. One.
1: Yeah, and it's not it's not boring at all. No, I appreciate it. And you've got, like you said, a very real-time like evidence that you believe it. You have voted with your feet. And so we appreciate that. <laughs> and we're glad to have you. We're glad to have you here. Well, let's let's leap into it on healthcare and talk about this. And I think um to the extent you're comfortable doing so, maybe a little bit of background that I know pops up every now and then, but but gets lost in the shuffle in my from my perspective. If you could tell the audience a little bit about just the history of the development of the current status of health insurance in the United States. Chris, as we jump into talking about healthcare, I think it'd be helpful to give the audience just a bit of context on just how we got to the current state, in particular the health insurance market in the United States. And I know as you tell this story, there'll be a bit of a legacy of price controls and, and policies coming out of World War II that in many ways shaped the legacy of health insurance in the United States. But I'd love it if you could give the audience just some background about how we got to where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the most important feature of healthcare in the
0: United States is that for 90% of people who are employed and of working age, they they get healthcare basically purchased by their employers. People don't really shop around and buy their own health insurance. People who are elderly are obviously in in Medicare, and that's a whole different world, but employer-purchased health insurance is really the main feature of the landscape in in America. Why is that? Well, as you suggested, the the history is really all about – it's kind of distorted by World War II. Um, Before World War II – health insurance was not something that most people had. Uh, like, people, healthcare was pretty cheap. Hospitals were saying that people mostly paid for out-of-pocket. Uh, there wasn't really that much that healthcare could do for you if you got sick. And as World War II developed, and as that generation kind of went through, like, healthcare suddenly became, like, a really expensive thing, Thing you really needed insurance to be able to afford. There were a lot of things that hospitals could do for you. And so it sort of happened that during that, that wartime era, Healthcare became a big ticket expense. Um, also during World War II as you
1: And it's interesting. I mean, you really do. You paint the landscape here. You know, somewhat of the unintended consequences of policy. You know, you put in wage and price controls in World War II, and all of a sudden, here we are, many, many decades later, and uh, the entire ecosystem of health insurance, and then by proxy of health insurance, health care has been shaped by those policies. As you, it it really is. Is is a study in like how policies affect uh, outcomes in yeah. ways that policymakers you never really think about. Well,
0: I think there. Was- which it was kind of uncontroversial for a long time, because if you think about the way the world was in the middle of the 20th century, mm-hmm. people basically stayed with the same employer for 20, 30 years, didn't really move around between jobs that much. Right. Uh, if you went to work at General Motors, you were probably there until the day you retired. You had these long, stable jobs with, uh, with the same employer. And so it wasn't really that much of a distortion. Um, but over time, like now, people move around a lot more between jobs. It's also it's also the case, become the case that the whole uh, healthcare industry has adapted to the fact that an employer is the purchaser. And that has caused costs to explode in a way that uh, we was never really realized at the time and like it wasn't really uh, people didn't really think about the knock on consequences for the shape of the health the healthcare industry for, for the way the hospital hospitals are shaped and designed and and costed out.
1: Right. Well, and one of the things that I've always talked about and thought a lot about when it comes to this issue, and specifically to the point you're making, that employers are paying for health insurance, and then, of course, health insurance companies are paying for costs, really do have kind of a principal agent problem here. And in my, my opinion, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, And that you've got one group of people that are consuming health care, which is, of course, an incredibly important good in and of itself. It literally keeps us alive, healthy, and with a high quality of life. You have another uh, agent or another party paying for those costs, oftentimes health insurance companies themselves. And then you have another agent actually typically paying for the, uh, the health insurance and negotiating the cost of the health insurance actually um, th- that, that is covering everything. So you have almost a system in many ways. Again, this is my opinion, not yours, but I'm interested in your thoughts on this in that uh, it's almost perfectly incentivized to explode costs where people want the good, other people are almost secondarily paying for it. What are your thoughts on that?
0: No, I I completely agree. I think that's the fundamental challenge that we have is the, um, if you think about it, like when you're buying your own car or a house, you know, you're trading off quality, convenience against cost, you're kind of making a determination at every point, like, is this extra cost worth it? Like, when, when you decide right. to buy, like, uh, like a, a Lexus or a Toyota, you're, you're deciding cost, quality, convenience. You, you're, you're making that trade-off uh, versus, versus versus cost. Now, it's not the case uh, that, that health care is, is bought that way, and, and that leads to some pretty big dysfunctions. So if you think about when uh, an employer is buying uh, a health plan, um, it's not when it's thinking about which hospitals it includes in its network, it's not thinking which hospitals do I really need access to, which hospitals are really giving good value for money. Uh, an employer, if you think about it, your standard employer that might have like 50 or 60 staff, like a mid-sized employer, well, those 50 or 60 staff might live all around a metro area. And each of those staff members want to have their local hospital in the network, which is kind of a reasonable, normal thing for for someone to want to have is just like a basic. But that that kind of non-negotiable fact kind of hamstrings the employer's insurance plan when it's going to negotiate with the hospitals for inclusion in the network. Suddenly, price goes out of the window. Um, If you were an individual shopping for an insurance plan you kind of have maybe one or two hospitals, maybe a local hospital and a, and, and a regional hospital that you care about in the network, and you don't really care about any of the other hospitals, which means if you're buying insurance as an individual, that insurance plan can then go to the hospitals and negotiate pretty aggressively about whether it's in the network or not in the network, and the, um, and the hospital's price. Will show up in the insurance, and, and you have a high degree of price sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a group insurance plan, an employer purchase insurance plan, they're not able to ne- negotiate aggressively with the hospitals and really uh, insist on and cost-effectiveness uh, when, when it's negotiating rates. It has to have every single hospital around a metro area in its network because it has employees that live in every single um, in every single neighborhood around around an urban area. And that basically leads to a situation where the hospitals know that pretty much whatever they, pretty much whatever rate they demand in terms of reimbursement from the insurance company, they can be feel pretty comfortable that you know the insurance company and the employer that's ultimately paying for the insurance is going to agree to whatever they say. And that's a really bad dynamic in terms of uh, creating accountability for hospitals uh, in terms of cost the dynamic goes the other way. Um the hospitals know that if no matter what uh the insurers are going to reimburse them, then they start thinking, well, if I'm going to be in the network no matter what, um I I actually should probably be, be the most attractive hospital for people to visit in right. terms of the amenities, in terms of like the equipment, in terms of the staff, regardless of whether it's cost effective because if I'm in the network, I'm to be the hospital in the network that everyone visits. And once you're in the network, from the, the patient point of view, it doesn't really matter what the costs are. You want to go to the nicest hospital, the, 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 the best quality hospital, right. and cost. If, if all the hospitals are in the network, you, you're not starting to think about cost at all anymore. You're thinking about quality. You're thinking about reputation quite quite rightly. So from that sort of second state point of view, but right. it creates this arms race. In terms of costs and expense between the hospitals, which is then passed on through the insurance to the consumer and, and, and everyone who's paying for it at the end of the day, um, it creates like this negative dynamic where where cost is no longer a consideration, and that's that's really the dynamic that we're that we that we've been trapped by, and, and it's um, you know we're, we're we're gradually running out of road here. Uh, right. We're, we're we're sort of there. There's a sense in which you can agree to throw in more money and just pay the extra cost but at some point the extra cost just becomes overwhelming and, and we're running into a situation where your standard family coverage is often fifteen twenty thousand dollars a year which just, as, as, a, as a percentage of compensation for your average average household is just enormous right
1: yeah no the average american family i i don't know the the statistic of the day especially given recent economic calamity but you want to say 50,000 roughly, 50 to 60, maybe. Um, yep. Right? And that's an incredible percent of annual income if you think about it in that respect. Exactly. And no, and okay, so that it opens up another thing too, which is kind of a, it gets to what you're talking about and a question of like what is insured and what is not too, right? And as you talked about kind of the introduction, as we, we started this conversation, you talked about what existed before kind of the post World War II health insurance system in the United States. Where you had more people not have well, many more people that did not actually have health insurance and they are paying for things out of pocket. And one of the questions here is, you know, what all gets added under insurance policy? There's a definite push, I would say, certainly coming from the left, that basically anything related to healthcare should be glommed onto insurance, yeah. and that that's a whole nother issue. Talk a bit about that in terms of like what falls under insurance and how insurance is being uh, treated yeah. and changed.
0: So I mean, uh, I I think. The, the way to sort of begin thinking about this is just kind of recognize at some level that insurance is inevitably how this is going to get paid for. Because if you think about a major like a major surgery, like heart surgery, we're talking about a procedure that's inevitably going to cost tens of thousands, maybe over $100,000, mm-hmm. like a course of cancer treatment, uh, with, like, like with, with the new drugs that are coming through with, with, with hospitalizations that might be involved, uh, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and so this is this is not really going to be a matter for out-of-pocket payment like the reason we have insurance is because in like average households aren't able to afford this of dollars, but if you get a regulation to basically expand the concept of what health insurance should cover, all of a sudden you have this pot of money that's funded through the private sector that you don't need to raise an appropriation for, Mm -hmm. and you could get this private entity to pay for it, and and you don't even have to have anyone blame you for raising taxes, and so there's this great temptation uh, for people who want to expand the size of government, want to expand what is covered by government or paid for what would traditionally have been paid for by government by mandating what the what insurance paid for is expanded, uh, you can sort of expand government spending without having it look like government spending and so kind of blur the edges of what insurance and government is. And this, this, I think, has been a tendency over recent decades and probably will increasingly be so, is to try and blur the distinction between what is insurance and what is actually kind of a disguised government spending.
1: I couldn't agree more. And it's been a huge part and a big part of, I think, how, um, at least I understand, affordable care act and obamacare and, and, and what the attempt was to in many respects co opt insurance make it part of like a, a general like you said blurring this line between what is government policy what is actually health insurance um in so many respects right well it's a, so we've talked a lot about the the dysfunction in the market so far which i think is very important again to set the context of how we got here what it is what is not working properly and I know this is a bit of a loaded question, but I think it's important before we get to some of the solutions. Obviously, Obamacare was introduced now a number of years ago. Um, there was incredible controversy surrounding it. And let just give us a sense, in your opinion, of what Obamacare has done to, well, frankly, what it has done to this point to the markets that we're discussing. How would you describe its impact?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think... Obamacare was at one level a political phenomenon. Um, it, I think it was a lot of it was political hype. President Obama coming in as a generational political figure. This is his big brand um, project. Um, and it's, it, it was seen by his fans as the thing that was going to put him on Mount Rushmore. And a lot of the hype. Uh, associated with it was kind of about, it about, was kind of from the political side of things. Mm-hmm. And so, how you, and, and that translated the how you feel about Obamacare. First of all, I think for us, it will like begins with how do you feel about President Obama and do you want him to be on Mount Rushmore or not? And so, there was this great inflation of how important it was to the healthcare system. Now, bearing in mind that 90% of people have employer-sponsored insurance, the first thing to bear in mind about Obamacare is that it did very little to change employer-sponsored insurance. Um, And so for 90% of people of working age, it didn't really change much. Um, And for people on Medicare, it didn't really change much. Uh, And so the changes from the Affordable Care Act were really mostly two things. They were the individual market, which is, only 10% of people of working age, so probably only 3 4% of the population as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Medicaid expansion. Um, so the Medicaid expansion, it expanded Medicaid. This was about two-thirds of the spending in, in the Affordable Care Act. It expanded Medicaid entitlement to able-bodied working-age adults, so low-income people who weren't disabled, who weren't elderly. Um... It expanded that uh, to people, um, essentially earning less than about $15,000, which is people who are not really working full time. Uh, and so that that was controversial because because of, like the work incentive issue. Ultimately, it basically said that the government's going to provide a very generous health care entitlement to people who aren't working full-time. And you can see why that would be controversial from a working incentive point of view. And right. you lose this entitlement if you're essentially working full-time. Um, that, I think, was the crux of why that was controversial. And then, obviously, we had some states. Then it became a voluntary thing for states. Some states decided to expand. Some states decided not to expand. And that, I think, was the core of the, of the Medicaid expansion controversy. The, the insurance market reform, which, again, is, is the individual market, which is both, at the same time, like a small market, we're talking about like 15, 20 million people out of a country of 320 million people, so mm-hmm. a pretty small percentage of Americans go to the individual market, so it's it, in itself, it wasn't that significant, but in a broader kind of sense of where healthcare should go is probably more significant. Cause if, if you think as, as I certainly do, that it would be better to have individuals rather than employers buying health insurance. Um, you kind of want the individual market to be good and a much bigger deal than it currently is. And so there was a sense in which the reforms to the individual market were, were, were kind of a matter of principle about like, what is the real healthcare system that we want to build? Mm-hmm. And so what, market did at their core what they basically said is we're going to cover people with pre-existing conditions and the way we're going to do this is essentially by requiring insurance to be priced the same for people insurance the price plan is the same for people who sign up before they get sick as for people who sign up after they get sick right and the, the problem with that, I mean, it's obviously appealing if you have a pre-existing condition to have, have insurers required to sell insurance to you, which hadn't previously been the case. But the, the problem with that arrangement is it creates this massive incentive for people to just wait until after they get sick uh, before buying insurance. And so the, the consequence of this was that healthy people, to a large extent, stop buying insurance which means that only six people bought insurance on the individual market, which caused premiums to skyrocket because insurers had to had to cover these people, um, and it caused all this chaos on the individual market, which was. In one, in one, on the one hand, like solved a bit of a problem for people with pre-existing conditions, but then also created this massive problem that insurance was no longer really a good value at all for people to buy before they get sick, and so it created as much chaos as it, as it solved. Um, now the uh, it also created the legislation also created subsidies for people so that the people would still ultimately buy into the market to some extent if they were healthy, if they were entitled to subsidies. If they were lower than average income, so the market didn't disappear entirely. But if you didn't have subsidies, then forget about it. People just stopped buying insurance. And that, that was the chaos that the Obama administration essentially left us with on the, and the, on the individual market and why it was a problem. And, and, and uh, just then really remains a problem.
1: Right. And what you're talking about, too, it gets back to what we, we talked about before, which is like kind of the blurring of the line and the changing of the concept of, of what is health insurance and moving it away, frankly, from the concept of a, a risk adjusted product that, in, that a, in this case, in this country, an employer buys in order to hedge against the risk of a future uh, health care issue or healthcare need to a delivery mechanism through which government mandated policy can just push certain amount of health care to a certain designated populations.
0: That's right, and I, and I think there, was, uh, there were varying degrees of deliberateness um, in the Obama administration about this. I, I think with, with some of the folks in there, they were deliberately trying to make health insurance into more of an entitlement. And with, with some of the other people, I mean, obviously healthcare, health policy is very, very complicated, Right A lot of people didn't really realize that that was what was really going on and so yeah that that's exactly the crux of it. It was trying to shift insurance being from something where it's like you pay for something that is covering an extraordinarily priced risk to basically this massive entitlement that everyone's gonna be part of, and people pay different amounts to be covered by this entitlement, but it's really a government program with you know a private insurance label on it but it, 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 and it, and it's in its function and it's an entitlement and, and that was there was this change of um of nature and in, in, in what an insurance market actually is
1: exactly and I, I I personally believe here and I'm not putting words in your mouth but I, I do believe very strongly that that entire uh concept of what Obamacare was was key to being able to sell it to certain corporate actors in that sense that the health insurers were bought in on this because it changed their product into a delivery mechanism and an entitlement for a certain percent of the population. It basically guarantees them income in so many, so many steps. And likewise, yeah. well, I was gonna say, and likewise too, there's many hangers on in that action too, which includes countless consulting firms and other, uh, you know, tangentially connected industries that saw this was going to be in many ways a gold rush. For some portion of time, and for them, it that that's what allowed them to buy into this uh, active legislation in the way that maybe they didn't previously.
0: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing I think on the insurance industry is actually the insurance industry is split on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some insurers, uh, and I'm going to be specific about this: Blue Cross and Sigma, that very much buy-in of the Obamacare model, that insurance is largely an entitlement and that their job is to administer the entitlement. And then there are also insurers that want insurance to be insurance and, and want to be competing vigorously and want to be pricing competitively and want to be driving innovation through like robust competition and I think those insurers are more like United and Aetna. And so there was a real divide in the insurance industry about what their industry should look like in the future. Um, and so there, there was this, this controversy in the industry. There, and, and, and if you pay attention to the industry politics, there, there actually has been this real disagreement within the insurance industry about which direction they ought to be going. And that, that disagreement is, is still there right now, and there, there are some people they're making a lot of money out of, of Obamacare in the insurance industry, and then there are insurers that would, would want a more competitive environment that have been more resistant to the Obamacare revolution. And, and, and that battle is gonna, go, is gonna run and run, I think.
1: That is a very good point to make. Yes, you know, in the way that I think, you know, this is a purely political take on this, and I think you look at it from the stance of uh, the Obama administration, Barack Obama, the people that were working with him, the goal isn't so much to get every single insurer on board or every single tangentially connect, connected uh, entity in the healthcare market. It was to divide, conquer, and get critical mass that could then be broadcast by the media to say, look, even even the healthcare industry is, is all for this. And that's a bit of the politics of like how you press a message. But I think you make a good point. It doesn't mean that everybody in a given industry is on board with X, Y, or Z policy, whether they be good or bad policies. Um, we have talked a lot about the dynamic of the problems and what got here. We haven't talked about all the problems, needless to say, because we could do that for another couple more hours. But let's take a step back now and talk about how do we how do we move forward? What are some of the solutions? And I know this is an incredibly wide open question, but I would I would urge you to kind of prioritize as to what you think is like. If you have to think of like the next step in your mind, what do we have to get done sooner than later in order to get things on the right track in the healthcare market? Healthcare.
0: Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think the, the the most promising thing, that, in my mind, the Trump administration did, is they created an option
1: for employers to put pre-tax dollars in an individual account, basically give people dollar, pre-tax dollars to buy their own
0: insurance, mm-hmm. and that on the on the one hand extends all the the advantages of employers purchasing insurance, the, the tax advantages to individuals allows individuals really to negotiate a better deal with insurance, get a plan that really meets their needs, uh, purchase one that's a lot more cost-effective, and and get, like, really, which helps, like, pass down good incentives and turn the screws and get negotiate better prices from hospitals and kind of allow that cost-quality trade-off to be made properly. But that also secondarily kind of gets rid of a lot of the pre-existing condition problems. If you think about what the pre when the pre-existing condition problem happens, in most cases, it's when people leave a job uh, and then go from an employer source of coverage and then have to buy their own coverage from the individual market. And if they'd had a major medical condition, like if they'd had cancer while they were in there covered by their employer. That was fine so long as they were covered by the employer, but then they go to the individual market, and if they've recently had cancer, the insurers might be afraid of them. Well, if you're on an individual market plan, and you carry that plan from employer to employer, the continuous coverage means that it's not a pre-existing condition. You had the insurance before you had the condition, and you can keep renewing the the plan, and you keep the, the coverage seamlessly, which means that the condition didn't pre-exist your purchase of insurance. And that's really the market-compatible way to solve pre-existing conditions. So moving from a situation where employers are buying coverage to one where individuals are buying coverage is the the ultimate solution to the cost problem, and it's also the solution to the pre-existing condition problem in the long run. So I think that was a um, a big step forward that the Trump administration did. It's still kind of latent, and the reason why it's, it's not a complete solution, is that the individual market is kind of broken right now um, because of the Obamacare pricing uh, reforms. The the requirement that you uh, price insurance the same for people who sign up after they get sick as people who sign up before they get sick cause prices to skyrocket, which means that every plan on the individual market is a bad deal right now. And so even though we've now fixed the tax problem, we've created this other problem, which means that even though we've gotten rid of the tax obstacle to people buying their own insurance, the individual market means that buying your own insurance doesn't give you good value anymore. So we need to fix that problem. The solution to that problem is ultimately allowing people to get a discount if they sign up before they get sick. Allowing people to get basically appropriately priced coverage if they sign up before they get sick. Then you can have plans on the individual market be priced attractively to people, again, priced in proportion to their risk. And then you can have plans that are basically uh, cost-effectively priced and people can shop around and get good value for themselves and be in control. And so it's really marrying these two policies. Having fixed uh, the tax side of it, um, we now need to fix the the insurance pricing side of it. But if we can can marry those two policies together and have them work, hand in glove, uh, we can really have a much better functioning insurance market and one, one that's going to give the consumers good value and allow them to be protected as they move from job to job and, and between different employment situations.
1: Well, and I, one of the questions I wanted to ask, in because in, you are talking about pre-existing conditions and the ability, as you said, the, the portability of a health insurance plan, regardless of your employer or potential unemployment, uh, speaks to again allowing people to just retain insurance throughout whatever whatever illness they may face and wherever they may be working or not working. One of the other questions I wanted to ask you about is talk a bit about health or excuse me about uh, high-risk pools. Um, this is a policy that exists or a policy uh, solution that existed in the state of Wisconsin prior to the uh, the introduction of Obamacare was basically eliminated by eliminated by the introduction of Obamacare but it basically existed uh, to subsidize the purchase of health insurance by people who had pre existing conditions. Talk a bit about uh, high risk pools and how you do or do not see them fitting into potential future solutions.
0: So I, I think as a concept, the idea of the essence of the idea of high risk pool is that there are some folks out there who are uninsurable mm-hmm. because of their medical risks. Uh, no, no insurer is going to be willing to cover them given their costs. And so we want to target a subsidy as this group of people. Um, we don't want to mess up insurance to everybody else. Everyone who's who can be insured privately through their own funds should be. Uh, but we want to target assistance. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the best way conceptually to go forward. What I think the... The Affordable Care Act tried to do is it basically said let's let's turn upside down the insurance market for so the 90% of people that can insure themselves to fix the, the 5 or 10% that can't insure themselves, and it ended up breaking things for the 90% without really creating a great situation for the 5 to 10%. Um, so I think the way to get to a situation where you have more like targeted assistance of the high-risk poor situation I think the the way to do that is ultimately to turn the Obamacare exchanges into high-risk pools. I mean, if you think about them, they are de facto entitlements. They're structured as an entitlement. They're highly dependent on government funding. They're essentially a disguised entitlement. And if you look at who's in these exchanges, the the Obamacare plans, de facto is a high-risk pool. So At some level, I would say let's just have Obamacare, let it become the high-risk pool, and focus on creating a real insurance market alongside that. And most people who just want normal insurance could buy appropriately priced insurance and then just keep Obamacare as a safety net, not as the one insurance plan that everyone has to be forced into, and doing what the Obama administration did, which is try and ban every other source of insurance. We should make sure that there is a mainstream source of insurance that's good value and appropriately priced. And, and if Obamacare remains like a fairly small safety net for people with pre-existing conditions, that's fine, but it shouldn't be the only, the only place to go. Yeah,
1: and I think it's such a critical point because what you're talking about is a much more targeted, much more discreet, and much more tailored solution to people that are in a unique circumstance. And, and I think the conservative mindset being like, let's put in place a functioning market for health insurance in a way that actually helps to control costs over time and allow individual Americans to make rational decisions for their own families that best fit their needs. And then, yes, we recognize that the insurance product is, is, can be difficult to obtain for certain people with pre-existing conditions. And here is a targeted policy solution which is meant to address the people that, that in essence are the exception um, and, and would struggle in many cases in the market. and so, But that is a fundamentally different idea than what you talked about, which was, again, the concept behind Obamacare, which is let's upend the market and we will simply blow the whole thing up. And in, re- in reality, everybody's, again, in this individual market is being hit with dramatically increased costs. And it was such an inverted way to approach the problem in my, in my mind. In that you had you had an option to make this far more targeted and discreet. Again, this is me speaking, not you. I, I just don't think that was the objective of the people that put Obamacare into action, including President Obama. Was not really to solve this discrete problem. It was to upend the insurance market and eventually change this into an entitlement. But that's again my opinion. I don't mean to put. I I agree with you. I don't think that's the case of every single person involved in the advancement of Obamacare. I think that was for many
0: yeah i I think that that's the right take on it the uh there were mixed motives some people wanted to push everyone into a one-size-fits-all entitlement some people probably didn't and a lot of people probably just didn't really understand the issue to be quite honest like it's it's a very very complicated issue out of 435 members of the house how many really could understand the distinction and think it through? I do this full time, and, and and it takes a lot to sort of keep track of it. Like, I, I appreciate every member of Congress has got a thousand issues that they that they care about, and healthcare is not, in most cases, the number one thing that they ran uh, for Congress because they cared about. Uh, the, the amount of people who really care about healthcare is the number one issue is a small minority of members of Congress.
1: Well yeah, and and not only that, but I also think too that right, it's, I think you make the absolute point, which is a good one. And I urge people to talk to their members of Congress if they have any doubt about what you just said. But beyond that, too, I just think there's a lack of conception of understanding like how much healthcare will affect every other pet project and and, and um uh objective, right? We talk about our our national debt um, and, and how it's growing and what that number means. And I think that probably a lot of people don't understand that what that debt truly is in many respects is just long-term owed promises in the form of, yeah, Social Security, but Medicare and Medicaid as well too. And, you know, the calculations on what that debt really is in terms of particularly health care, right? It, it, it's a guess because, yeah. it, it, right, it's almost impossible to calculate, especially when you see the uptick in cost, and to, to assume what that cost is really going to be in 10, 20 years. When we hear $23 trillion, sure, that's a guess based on what future healthcare spend really could be. Right. Well, I mean, that's the big difference. You actually sort of look at the
0: projections. The Social Security cost projections kind of flatten out because we know what we're promising to everybody almost down to the dollar in what they're going to earn over their, life, in their lifetime from Social Security. With right. Medicare, it's basically an open-ended promise to cover whatever medical technologies and procedures get invented. And, you know, <laughs> what medical procedures and technologies are going to be widely available and used in 30 years from now? Well, right. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody right. knows. And so it's, it's a real kind of question mark, and that's a much more, it's not just the amount of Beneficiaries that are going to be retiring and living longer, which you can kind of predict, it's it's a uh, it, it's an open-ended covering of, a, of an array of procedures and benefits that are just going to increase and increase and increase. Over time. And it's and ultimately a good thing that we're going to be able to do this, this extra stuff for people that they get sick and let right. them live longer. Uh, but it, it, it basically means that the costs are going to be cumulative.
1: Exactly right. and I- not only does this exist in individual homes, but it, of course, exists at a national level. It exists for every state and municipality, and how they are projecting their future costs. Yep. And I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but for our audience, you know, one of the scary things about this is that when municipalities and states uh, calculate their future owed costs and their quote-unquote debt, a lot of this stuff, healthcare in particular, exists not on balance sheets but in footnotes in financial statements and I did I did work on this in graduate school and it is it is crazy in the sense that yes the state of Wisconsin can say our debt is xyz and this is true of pensions as well as healthcare they calculate that they throw it on a balance sheet and then in the footnote they'll say plus all this potential healthcare spend in the future that we really don't know what it is
0: yeah yeah it's uh well, you know, there there was a uh, you know, an economist called Howard Stein who said, you know, if something can't go on forever, then eventually it will stop. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean that's true. <laughs> like healthcare spending growth, you know, eventually right. it's going to stop. Whether it stops in a way that we're happy with, or they just cut off the funds and we we, we have to deal with showfalls, it's like it'll we'll find a way to make it stop, and then live with it stopping. But you know, it's better to be prepared in advance so that you're. You, so, the money running out doesn't sort of it doesn't happen in a way you're
1: not prepared for. Absolutely, and that is the entire point of this conversation is to say we view this as a critical problem if we do not get ahead of addressing it. And no, by the way, Obamacare really didn't address it. And I think we've talked very, um, very fairly about that here today to say this is what it did, this is what it did not do. Let's be very honest about that. And you know what? I'll take it a step further. Again, my words, not yours, but kind of Americans deep-seated uh, unhappiness with the state of healthcare is one of many things that have led so many people to be dissatisfied with the state of their government in general. And I, you know, so I even go beyond the financial issues or, or beyond the pure healthcare issues to say, this is a deeply seated issue that needs to get fixed so that Americans can gain confidence in their system of government in so many respects. One of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and you kind of alluded to it, or not kind of, I think you did allude to it, with regard to some of the Trump administration policies were put in place. But health, healthcare savings accounts, and basically talk about the benefits in your mind, anyways, the benefits and, and exactly how they can fit into solutions going forward.
0: So there are there are all kinds of different sorts of private ac- pre-tax accounts for for healthcare. There are healthcare savings accounts, which are really about out-of-pocket expenditures. So that's, that's an account that you can accumulate funds in, and you can use that to, you know, go towards, like, copays, deductibles, you go to the pharmacy, you can use it to pay for prescription drugs, uh, basically to cover out-of-pocket costs. Mm-hmm. And what the Trump administration did was for – an HSA um, uh, carries over every year, so any money that goes into your HSA this year – as whatever was put in last year, whatever goes in next year, and, and it builds up over your life. The Trump administration policy, what they did related to an HRA, which is a slightly different kind of account, which is an account that, um, that, the, uh, that your employer can put money in for you to use, but that money disappears at the end of the year. Um, but the different, another key difference between two kinds of accounts is the H, HRA, the reimbursement account, that is, you can use that for premiums, and an employee can put money in there, and you can buy an insurance plan. It's not just out-of-pocket costs. You can you can use it for out-of-pocket expenses, but you can also use it to buy the whole insurance plan. Okay. Um, and, and 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 that's kind of a way of transmitting. The purchasing of the insurance plan from the employer to the individual whereas the hsa is really just about the out-of-pocket costs um and, and that's so, so the hsa is really about the out-of-pocket costs whereas the hra is about premiums not just the out-of-pocket costs
1: understood and the consistency between both is that you are allowing individuals uh first the tax advantage that's given to employers to go out and make some form of market-based purchase, whether it be an out-of-pocket cost or, in the case of the HRA, the actual health insurance plan. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And, and the, the essence of both is really it's all about shifting control. Right. So it's about shifting control from the employer to the individual. The individual. And I think it's the, you mentioned, like, the satisfaction that people fundamentally have, and I think the fundamental problem that, that, that people have with American health care is they're just, they're just not in control. It, it sounds like it's supposed to be a private insurance system. But people don't control their health care. They don't even pick their insurance plan in most cases. Their employer tells them what their insurance plan is going to be. It tells them what their network is going to be. It tells them what their benefits going to be. People have no control over it. Health care is something that happens to people in America. It's not something that they pick and choose for the most part. It's something that their, their HR department says, this is what it is. Uh, if you don't like it, tough. Uh, and that's, that's, that's not something that Americans really want in any other part of the economy. Right. Uh, but in healthcare, they're trapped into it, and so mm-hmm. like restoring individual control, I think, is the essence of, of, of what would make Americans feel better about their health care system and kind of get them what they want.
1: I could not agree more. And I, I, one example I share with audiences when I talk in healthcare is um, actually relates to the state of Indiana, which has a program, and this is for literal not, not just the re, not the residents of uh, Indiana writ large, but for specifically the uh, employees of state government. Where it's got like a deductible security plan, where the state government does in fact cover the health insurance premium, but also then allocates about twenty eight hundred bucks into an HSA every year. Again, to your point, this is going to cover out of pocket expenses. It is not the HRA that you're talking about with the Trump administration. But ultimately, the results are real. And you're talking about control. That's why I bring this up here. And employees that actually use that plan tend to be about seventy percent less likely to go to high cost emergency rooms. Um, and, and instead, um, go to lower cost urgent care centers. And the overall spend uh, on healthcare in general is about 35% lower. And part of that is because of that control issue and the fact that in these HSAs, they actually can roll over year to year the savings and retain it. And it's a wealth gaining mechanism, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that's a part of it is that there are
0: big cost differences in healthcare depending on where you go. Right. Like if you get surgery, From a regional medical center or uh, or a small clinic, Uh, the price difference is even in Medicare. Medicare will pay like more than twice as much for you to have a surgery in a regional medical center. The exact same surgery as in an ambulatory surgery center that might be like in a strip mall or or, like in in a neighborhood. The exact same thing, and so the out-of-pocket costs really should transmit that, that price signal to people uh, so that we're not just having everyone going to the, the, the most expensive locations where the greatest costs are incurred.
1: Right, exactly. Let me and, and I want to close with this. I have another question too, a broader one, but I, I predict, and I don't think this is that crazy of a, predict, predict, or a prediction, uh, <laughs> that we're hearing more about Medicare for All in the coming months and maybe renamed to something else. I, I don't know. But to those that are going to come in and say to the American people, you know, Medicare for all or something like it is a solution, if you had to give them a, an immediate response, what would it be? Well, so
0: I sort I, of, I, on the premise, I think that Medicare for all was a Democratic presidential primary slogan. The, the closer that Biden is to, to actually having to get things through Congress, that just disappears. So there's no votes for any of us there's no money for it, uh, when you actually have to be honest with people about how you pay for it, like, the, the appeal of it just fades away, and I, I don't think we're going to be hearing much about it this year, um, but in terms of, like, what the fundamental problem with it is, is the Medicare for all, like, most, we have people in America that don't have health care that are, like, unable to buy, Part of the, the the population, there's maybe like 12 percent of people that don't have insurance, and you can, or and even those that had, don't have insurance, like they're getting some services that some of them are buying out of pocket. Um, and so you could focus on like that ten percent that don't have insurance or don't have access to care, and give them and, and give them uh, assistance, or you can focus on the eighty-five to ninety percent that already have insurance and spend trillions of dollars basically having the government pick up the costs for the 85%, 90% that already have insurance right. without providing extra care or extra services to anybody. Um, and that's uh, at the essence what the Medicare for All proposal does. Uh, the, the vast majority of the spending on that proposal doesn't give any extra services to anybody. It just shifts all the costs on to taxpayers. Um, and so, like, that that's why I think it's – complete political pie in the sky this enormously expensive proposal we're talking about like four trillion dollars a year just to pick up the costs that are already being incurred without actually giving people extra stuff that they weren't already getting um which i mean i think if you think about it that way it just doesn't like there's really no reason to do it and i i think like it's not something that congress has ever really um Going to consider as like an incremental change uh, to, to to the status quo. Congress wants to like address people with unmet needs. It's not looking to mess around with with care and and, and shift the cost to taxpayers. They're already being borne for by the private sector.
1: Well, you have a more noble view of Congress than I do, <laughs> but no, I I agree with your premise that I I hope the votes aren't there for this. I don't predict that they are, and I think that's just simply the reality, particularly in the Senate. Um, But I I will say this, and and while conceptually, I love the way you've captured the absurdity of Medicare for all and how it in fact does not solve problems, it exacerbates them and transfers costs. Uh, But I do think that it can be a, um, ultimately, it it can be a useful foil for certain political figures, whether it's Biden or it's members of Congress or whatever the case is. I think you'll still hear the phrase introduced as a way to rile people up at the right moment. And, And frankly to misdirect in many respects and keep people angry that they don't have X and they want it, Yeah. even if it doesn't truly solve anybody's problems. And so I think your points are, are well taken on the absurdity of the system that's being proposed and in its limitations, even politically, but it'll serve a purpose for somebody somewhere. And it gets us away from the real conversation that I think you and I had today, which is that, look, there are... Real market solutions that will address these problems. There are. Well,
0: I think that, that actually sort of gets to my theory about why Medicare for All became this rallying cry in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, is you know, it's a great alternative to having to talk about the flaws of Obamacare. Um, I
1: agree. The yes. The Democrats
0: could have had a very yes. painful conversation about what went wrong with Obamacare, um, and. They chose not to have that conversation. They they basically chose to say, "Hey, look over there. We can have this talk about like this yeah. fantastical thing," and it worked. It was this great distraction away from actually fixing what they broke.
1: Yeah, well, and that's it. And uh, yes, and that's why we did this conversation today, and we're thrilled that you could join us because I think this is absolutely. We started off by saying this, but this solving the issues of healthcare and our future spend on it, and making sure people have access to high quality healthcare no matter who they are is critical to the future of this country in so many different ways, from quality of life to our future finances. And so so we appreciate you being able to to bring this to bear and to have a real conversation about what going forward we need to be thinking about and what real solutions are. Um well, I
0: appreciate the invitation. Thanks. Thanks for reaching out.
1: No, of course. Well I have one question I close it with with everybody in this season and um, up till now I've been saying 2020 is a has been a really tumultuous year but guess what I can say the same thing about 2021 so we're we're yeah. still in a tumultuous year it's been challenging for many millions of Americans obviously and frankly too billions of people across the globe for various reasons but as you look forward, what is something that you are optimistic or hopeful for what is the thing that ultimately makes you excited for the future of this country
0: Well I mean, I think ultimately that politics is a pretty small part of life, um, and there are 300 million people that get up in this country every day, and they get up to work hard, and they get up to create new businesses, create new opportunities, raise their families, and they're they're all really like put it put in their effort into making this a better country and trying to figure out new ways of. making it a better country and and, you know policymakers, their job is to have the american people's backs and set up institutions so everyone's behavior is channeled in a way that's productive and so that the people are mostly trying to figure out ways to serve each other better so that they're creating useful products if they're businessmen um and and not just trying to scam the government out of money uh we, we want people's energies to be well directed and you know for the most part i think that it's easy to focus on the stuff that, that isn't that that, that that is dysfunctional if it bleeds it leads it goes on the news mm-hmm. but for the most part like people are quietly going about their business and and, and every day people are coming up with uh, with wonderful new things and you know the pandemic on the one hand is this terrible thing that came in and, and destroyed a lot of people's lives but Not just one vaccine. A whole host of different companies came up with vaccines, and we're going to get past this in a way that no one's ever gotten past the pandemic in human history. And we're going to look back at this and think that was a that was a phenomenal achievement. And so that's the thing that I'm that, that, that I'm certainly enthusiastic about. Twenty twenty one. The the uh, and that's a real American success story. I mean, like, where were the what are the vaccines that really came through with ninety five percent efficacy? I mean, this is Moderna. This is Pfizer. Right. The American dry, drug industry, like, uh, saving the world, that, that the vaccine, uh, sorry, the virus might have come out of China, but but the solution to it really came out of the United States. And that's something that's that, that this nation can be proud of and shouldn't, shouldn't, for, shouldn't forget, like, like, why it is we were able to do this.
1: I could not agree more. And thank you, Chris. And thanks for joining us on the Right Idea podcast. And we look forward to speaking to you again soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thank you for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, Luminary, or wherever you listen to podcasts.